they missed the spiritual truth. They missed the idea of repenting and having their sin covered. Instead, they thought we can just continually please God by sacrificing more goats, and then we can go ahead and sin as much as we want. That is not what God wants. God wants your heart. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So the the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied really from between 739 to 681 BC. That is a time span of 58 years. He really prophesied during the era of four kings. You'll see that in the first verse when we dig into it. And it's tradition tells us that Isaiah was eventually sawed in half by one of the kings of Judah. And the king that that's attributed to traditionally is King Manasseh, who was the grandfather of King Josiah. If you remember our study through the book of Kings, Josiah is my favorite. He's the best king in Israel's history. I mean, God says that Josiah, there was no king like him before or after who loved God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But his grandfather Manasseh was the most evil king in Israel's history. Uh, He did experience some redemption at the very end of his life. But during his evil reign, he was the most evil king in history of Israel. And it's rumored that he is the one who sawed or had Isaiah sawed in half, probably because he didn't like some of the messages that Isaiah was bringing. And you even find reference to this in Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, chapter 11 is going through, it's what's called the Hall of Faith, and it's mentioning a group of characters from Scripture, people from Scripture historically, who were known as people of great faith. And in verse 37 of Hebrews 11, it's mentioned that some of them were sawn in two, and that's likely a reference to the prophet Isaiah, who was killed by King Manasseh. Here's why. The book of Isaiah, interestingly, scholars have noted this weird parallel. I'm going to tell you why I don't like this parallel, but it is intriguing and important to understand. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. Interestingly, the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, 
pretty much tell the story of Israel's history, their sin, and God's judgment, which sounds an awful lot like the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament. In the last 27 books of or chapters of Isaiah, which is 27 books in the New Testament, uh, basically tell the story of restoration and redemption, which sounds a whole lot like the New Testament. And so scholars have noted that Isaiah itself is like a miniature Bible within the Bible because it tells the whole story of Scripture. The reason I don't like that parallel is because the chapters and verses were added later. They're not part of the original text, so the fact that there's 66 chapters and 66 books is just coincidence, unless that was what the archbishop who decided to put chapters and verses in the Bible to help make it easier to reference was intending to do with the book of Isaiah. It's not a weird natural phenomenon from Isaiah's scrolls. But it is interesting that basically the amount of meat in the book of Isaiah, the first part of it, is equal in terms of percentage to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, and the whole Bible, uh, and that the stories are very similar. So it is important to note, but that weird 66 chapter, 66 book thing is just sort of a coincidence. But let's dig in to the book of Isaiah. We'll be going through the first four chapters today. So chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we now see the, the area of which Isaiah reigned. So we know he was prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah. Because we know the dates based on these kings, we also can tell that this was around 739 BC to 681 BC. What that tells us is this is during the time period in which Israel had split into two. And Israel had split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But this is shortly after the northern kingdom of Israel was kicked out of the land by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians had booted out the northern ten tribes of Israel out of their land, and the kingdom of Judah somehow resisted the Assyrian army which was the most powerful army at the time. Of course, they felt a little bit prideful about their ability to stave off the most powerful army while the northern kingdom of Israel was not. And so the southern kingdom of Judah has this pride in their heart, and the kings start moving towards idolatry after this. And the, the southern kingdom of Judah starts moving towards idolatry after the northern kingdom of Israel is kicked out of their land. And now they're left. And Isaiah's ministry for the next 58 years is basically giving a whole bunch of warnings about the coming judgment of God if these people don't give up on their idolatry. Just like their brothers and sisters in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel was kicked out by Assyria, Isaiah is going to be telling them about the coming judgment of the Babylonian empire to wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah. And that is the tension that exists between Isaiah and the kings. So it says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. This is God's way of saying, He has chosen this nation, He has plucked 
them up out from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and place them in this land. He's taking care of them. Yet, even though he's given them the land flowing with milk and honey and he provided for them in the desert when they were wandering, these people have rebelled against him. And then, this is almost a little snarky in verse 3. It says, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. And so, in verse 3, he's even saying, even the dumb animals are aware of their masters. They know who their owner is. The donkey listens. The ox does what it's supposed to do. But God's people don't even consider their creator, even though they were separated and set apart to be a light to the nations. Instead of being a light to the nations, they become folly. And God judges them using the surrounding nations. Verse 4, Alas, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Who should you be stricken? Or why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed up, bound up, or soothed with ointment. He's saying they have become so sick in their wickedness that it's covered from head to toe. There's no good found inside. And nothing is healing them that God is doing for them. So it says, verse 7, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in the vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. God is saying, you have mingled with the nations around you. You have brought in their practices, and you've brought in their people, and it has corrupted you. And when he says, you're like a hut in a garden of cucumbers as a besieged city, what he's saying is, you're trying to protect what you have with a hut. You've built this city that isn't fortified, and you're letting strangers in. You have no defense because they've left God. They've rejected God's word and God's commandments. And they've given themselves over to idolatry and they've allowed the neighboring, the foreigners in to corrupt them. And so they're basically trying to defend themselves with a hut or a shack instead of a fortress. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us, left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Now this is where it turns and gets even worse, right? Now they're saying, there's this small remnant of people, if it wasn't for them, these people who were somewhat faithful, this small group of people, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God says in verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. God says, you are like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. 
when you come to me to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense and abomination is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity at the sacred and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. I underline that in my Bible. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. So what he's saying is, you think that there is some remnant left that's faithful to me because there are still sacrifices happening at the temple. You're still doing the ritualistic things that you think appeases me. And God is telling them, I don't care about your sacrifices. I don't delight in the blood of bulls and rams. I don't look forward to your sacrifices. They don't appease me. I'm not looking for bulls and rams and goats and blood. What I'm looking for is your heart. Stop trying to please me with a bull. That doesn't please me. I want your heart. Instead, you think just doing the task is what pleases me. It doesn't. And he even goes to the point of saying, all of your, your feasts and the things that you ritualistically do, even though they were written in the law of Moses, he says, my soul hates. That's because God is not interested in your tasks. He's not interested if you kneel at the right time or in the right spot. He's not interested if a candle is lit or not. He's not interested in you going to confession because you think it's a task that you need to do. All of the ritualistic religious things that we have to th that we think is going to please God, it doesn't please him. What pleases him is a heart that's seeking him. He hates these things. What the sacrifices and the feasts we're supposed to do is to point them to a larger truth that we see that's fulfilled in Jesus. They missed the spiritual truth. They missed the idea of repenting and having their sin covered. Instead, they thought we can just continually please God by sacrificing more goats, and then we can go ahead and sin as much as we want. That is not what God wants. God wants your heart. And so what he says is, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Turn from sin and point your heart to me. <laughs> That's what he wants, not your sacrifices. Now, God is just. There does, there does need to be punishment for sin, and that's why Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. But he doesn't delight in his wrath. He delights in his grace. And he says, come now, verse 18, and this is a highlight verse if you have one. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now that 
That was maybe the, my favorite verse in the book of Isaiah. This is directly talking about the Messiah and the Savior. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're like crimson, they'll be as white as wool. And this reminds me of Psalm 22, where in Psalm 22, the writer is predicting a thousand years in advance the crucifixion. And one of the statements in Psalm 22 is that that person, whomever this sacrifice is happening to, is like a worm. But that worm is a particular word. It's not an earthworm. It's called a toloth worm. It's also known as the crimson worm. And this crimson worm leaves behind a red dye. It's actually a particular worm that was important to the Jewish leaders because that worm is where they got the red dye to dye all of the fabric for the tabernacle in the temple. And so it's referencing the sacrifices. But this worm also, when it dies, attaches itself to a tree so that it can be consumed by its young. After it's consumed by its young, it leaves behind a red mark on the tree. And that red mark lasts for about three days, and then it oxidizes and becomes white and flakes off of the tree. And interestingly, how that pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus, just like this does, your sins are like scarlet, and they shall be as white as snow. And he first says before that, come let us reason together. God wants you to use your brain. Understand. He's not interested in you appeasing him. He's interested in you loving him. So repent from the sinful way of life. Turn your heart towards him. Learn to do its good and love him. And your sins, though like scarlet, will be white as snow. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is, in general, what we're going to see a lot of in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. He states, a conditional statement. If you're willing and obedient to God, if you turn your hearts to him, great. You will get to continue to be a part of the land that's flowing with milk and honey. You'll get to have good crops and eat good of the land. But if you continue to rebel, God will judge you and you will be destroyed. You will be kicked out. Verse 21, he says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it. But now, murderers, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Dross is the impurities in silver that you would try to smelt out of it. So he's saying, though you were precious to me, you have become the impurity that devalues you. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, says, Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away your alloy. What he's saying is, I will take you away and get rid of your impurities. I will kick you out of the land and you will remain out of the land until you repent and want to come back to me. And then I'll bring you back. Because as much as this is a conditional covenant on, how, on their behavior, there's also an unconditional covenant back in Genesis 12 with Abraham that said that they would always occupy the land. So 
If God kicks them out, he will bring them back to keep his promise to Abraham, but he will remove their impurity first. Verse 26, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, this is a really interesting verse because eventually in 586 BC, is, or the kingdom of Judah is kicked out of the land by Babylon. And they get kicked out of the land for 70 years, and then they come back. When they come back, they have rulers like Ezra and Nehemiah over them. But they're not a sovereign nation. They're subject to the Persian Empire when they go back to the land. And they have governors and judges, basically, like Ezra and Nehemiah. So there's a, there's a fulfillment to that. But there's also a future ultimate fulfillment to that. In Revelation and in the book of Jude, what you'll find is that Jesus comes back with the church. book of Jude says he comes back with tens of thousands of his saints. In Revelation, it says that we will rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20. So we will also be, when Jerusalem is lifted up during the millennial kingdom upon Jesus' return, the church will be underneath Jesus as the judges on the earth, as judges meaning you will rule and reign with Jesus as governors over the areas. And so that's the ultimate fulfillment of that verse. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tinder and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one will quench them. And so finishes with this idea of God's coming judgment. And then chapter 2 has a different focus. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. So now we know we're talking about end time stuff. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what we're seeing is, in the end, at the end times, after the return of Jesus, this is during the millennial kingdom that you see in Revelation 20 and 21, that Jesus will reign from Zion. And all of the nations will come to seek him in his wisdom. And in that time, he will be the teacher. He will teach us the law of God. So if what I teach you, you don't learn enough, you will learn enough when Jesus is the teacher for sure. Because eventually in the millennial kingdom, he will be the one who rules and reigns and he will be the one who teaches the law of God to the nations. So that's pretty awesome. I can't wait for that. All my questions will finally be answered. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. 
They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. <clears throat> now he's talking about ultimate peace. Of course, this is why Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. Because when he returns and he sets up his kingdom on earth, there will be no more war. A thousand years of peace under him. And it says they will beat they will beat their spears into pruning hooks. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Instruments of war will become instruments of agriculture because of peace. This is actually repeated by uh, Micah, who also happens to be a prophet at the same time as Isaiah, who says almost identically the same thing in chapter 4 of his book, which we'll get there soon. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they, have, they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. So God is basically pointing out the pride that exists now in the kingdom of Judah. And that last statement, that their house is full of horses, Horses were a huge instrument of war, and what it's basically saying is they put trust in their own strength rather than the strength of God to protect them. And if you look back at the previous chapter, what they think is their strength, God calls a hut in a cucumber garden. Right? So understand that what they put their trust in is nothing compared to what they could have had if they put their trust in God. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. That which, make, which their own fingers have made, people bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. And the day of the Lord is, re is referencing the final judgment of God, the tribulation period, the last seven years, that judgment, which ends in the culmination of Jesus returning and wiping out the enemies of God. Upon everything lifted up, it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower and every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish and all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will execute in that day. But the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. So speaking of that final judgment. Now, interestingly, it's talking about people going into the holes of the earth, into the caves, into the rocks, and hiding from God during this judgment. If you can remember a couple years ago, back in our study of Revelation, that would sound familiar. In Revelation 6, 14 through 17, it says this, The sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains 
and said, The mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand. So we see similarity here between Isaiah and Revelation, talking about that final judgment of God. <clears throat> In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? And chapter 2 ends with this idea. Sever yourselves from men. Why? Because they're temporary. Their breath is in their nostrils. What do they have to offer? The idea here is fear God, not man. Do you care what people think of you, or do you care what God thinks of you? Are you looking to please the opinions of people or of God? What matters more? And considering the judgment of God that he will bring upon this earth, why would you choose to have man as the thing you decide to please over God? It makes no sense. Chapter 3, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, those whose supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. I will give children to their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent to the elder, and the base toward the honorable. What he's saying is, the attitude as that day approaches, and during that time period of the judgment of God, this is what the culture will be like on the earth. You'll see kids who are disrespectful to their elders and parents, those who indulge in their base human desires, snicker and snort at the, those who live honorable lives and withhold themselves from sin and try to be righteous. They'll be looked down on as though the virtue of the day will actually be to live in sin. Their sin will actually be paraded and celebrated, and those who try to live honorably will be looked down upon. So I leave that to you to think about that. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. In that day he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people, for Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory, to look on their countenance, witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. And it says here, this is about the decline of a nation that's going to receive judgment. It says, Jerusalem stumbled, Judah is fallen. The things they say and do are against God. They provoke God's anger, not only by sinning, but declaring it, promoting it, celebrating it. Woe to them that have brought evil upon themselves. But then there's this little blurb in the midst of all of this destruction and judgment. Pay attention to this verse because there's some hope attached. Verse 10, say to the righteous, those who don't indulge in this, say to the righteous that it shall be well with them. 
for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. So if you sustain and endure through the wickedness, you will be blessed. But, verse 11, back to the judgment. Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with them, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, to those who lead you, cause you to err, and destroy the way of your paths. And it's basically saying, those who are unqualified will be the leaders, oppressing the people. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? Says the Lord God of hosts. And now he's judging them for the way that they've treated their neighbors. You have gained only for the sake of gain without helping those who are poor. Not only have you not helped them, you've actually created the problem. You've taken advantage of the poor to enrich yourselves. Moreover, the Lord says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab, the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, and it's just a list of all material goods. He's taking away everything that they, their eyes sparkle at on this earth because of their greed and materialism. And that's it's just a list of things through verse 23. In verse 24, And so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit on the ground. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your names to take away our reproach. He's saying it's going to get so bad, and the judgment is going to get so bad, and nations are going to wipe out so many in the war that so many men will be lost to the war that there will be seven women to one man in the nation because of the devastating loss of life from this destruction that God is sending upon them because of their sin and their refusal to obey and love him. Now, chapter 4 is really short, so we're going to finish that up. Verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing, for those of Israel who have escaped. So you see the shift in tone. Because after the judgment of God, which ends with the return of Jesus at the second coming, in that final bloodbath in Revelation 19, then he sets up his kingdom, and the restoration begins. And this is what it looks like. It says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing, for those, the peop, those in Israel who stayed faithful, who remained at the end, in the end times, they will be considered righteous. They will have escaped the judgment. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. 
When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud of smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle, I would underline, underline that word, for a shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. And at this point, after the judgment's over, there will be a tabernacle, which means a dwelling, God dwelling with his people, that brings shade from the heat and a place of refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now, I wanted you to underline that word because in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14 says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The reason that that's important is the word dwelt can actually be translated tabernacled because it's literally saying God is dwelling with his people. And Jesus, upon his return, will bring the glory of God with him as he reigns in the millennial kingdom. And so this is the restoration of Israel. After all of their sin and rebellion, there will be a remnant who remain faithful at the end of days. And when Jesus returns and wipes out the enemies of God and sets up his kingdom, those who remain faithful and who are left in Jerusalem, have escaped the judgment of God, and they are part of the new millennial kingdom that Jesus sets up, and they will get to experience the glory of God tabernacling, dwelling with them at the end. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for these chapters. Thank you for the book of Isaiah and what it represents. Help us to go through this book with open eyes and ears to learn all of the things you have to tell us from beginning to end. Not just beginning to end of the book, but beginning to end of time. You've opened up a door to understanding uh, that we look forward to walking through. God, thank you for those of us who are fervent and, and desire to know more about you and know more about your word. I pray that we don't lose that desire, that it just continues to grow, and that we're able to share what we learn with others who are interested. In Jesus' name. Amen.